the title of today's talk is Life Unfabricated. Let me start with this story that this is not the first time I share with uh, this group, but uh, it's a very fruitful, very seminal story. So, I don't think it's a problem repeating it. And it's a story of the young Buddha. The young person who would become the Buddha, actually. Who, when he was young, a young man, was called Prince Siddhartha. Siddhartha's father was a monarch of a small kingdom located along what's now the border between India and Nepal. And this father was most keen in making sure that Siddhartha succeed him as the ruler of that kingdom. So he engaged in training him for that role. And, and he did that at a very at a very early age. As part of that training, he built for Siddhartha three palaces. One for the cold session, one for the warm session, and one for the rainy session, or season. And those were not ordinary palaces. In them, among Amid their splendor, Siddhartha was constantly being entertained by an abundance of performers, all female, by the way, who played music, sang, danced, and gladdened him with all sorts, in all sorts of ways. Siddhartha's early life was indeed a shining example of an elaborately fabricated life. But eventually, at age 29, Siddhartha had the sense that there was something wrong with the enclosed life he was living. To check this out, he persuaded his charioteer, his chauffeur at the time, you know, to take him on a tour of the area around the palaces. When his father learned about this, he ordered that area be immediately cleaned up. But the cleansing did not work to perfection. Siddhartha still could sight, caught sight of three views that revealed to him some of the starkest realities of life. He ran into a very old man, a sick man, and a dead man, a corpse. 
And then after that, he saw a wandering monk who inspired him to break away from the fires of the palaces and become one such monk himself. A monk that would eventually become the Buddha. As for us, like in Siddhartha's early life, our lives are also embroiled in fabrications, though not as overwhelmingly. Today's talk is about how to disentangle ourselves from such fabrications. Two, one difference between the contemporary situation and that of the historical Buddha is that today we are not more likely we are more likely to choose a, a secular pathway for liberation rather than a monastic one. But anyway, both pathways can be just as effective. And both are an integral part of the Buddha's teaching. Before talking in any detail about disentangling ourselves from fabrications, let me clarify how is it that we get into them? How do we stage them in the theater of our daily life? Like for any production, in order to stage it, we need to stage, right? Obviously. For young Siddhartha, it was the three palaces. And for us, it is primarily our home and our workplace. Our workplace, as many of us know from first-hand experience, is not just a space for earning a living. It is also, if not primarily, the stage in which we play or played when we were younger, the role that we believe or believed justify our existence. That's certainly how I used to see the various laboratories where I carried out my scientific career and which I assume they, it, the career, validated. And then there is our home, the place where we conduct much of the rest of our lives. Whatever we choose to stage in it is bound to become a centerpiece in the place, in the play of our life. Nothing wrong, of course, in taking full advantage of our workplace, our home, or whatever other spaces we may use to conduct our activities, including our social life. 
but a problem emerges when we come to believe that any of them is a requirement to justify our existence. Can't we just be part of the flow of life without feeling compelled to fabricate ourselves on the basis of the roles we play? You see, when we fall for that compulsion, as I did for many years and our culture encourages us to do, we end up turning a blind eye to the actual experience of being and replacing it with the story of a fictional protagonist. The story, of course, needs not just the stage, but also the script for the actors to deliver. A significant part of our script are the stories we tell others about ourselves. In doing that, our paramount concern is often whether or not we get a good rating from our audience. Do our listeners approve of it, of it, of us, or do they flunk us? A common way of flunking is to respond to our narratives by saying, Oh, come on, get a life. <laughs> but what does get a life mean? I was intrigued about that. And so I went to the web to, for clarification. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> there I found out that it means different things to different people, not surprisingly, perhaps. For some, it means to get a well-paid job. For others, to enter into a stable relationship. For others, to start a career, to buy a house, or whatever. But on the whole, the commonality here is that it means to fabricate a goal-oriented life for oneself. For me, when I was young, the goal was to become a well-established scientist. And I did, by the way. Which is also, that was also my father's goal. My father's wish for me, I should say. In sum. The storyline of our life is meant to impress both others and ourselves. A footnote here. On occasion, when applying for a job, the storyline takes the form, stereotype form, of what's called a resume, a curriculum vitae, vitae, or CV. That is, a list of our so-called achievements. What we include in our resume largely depends upon what we assume 
will interest our prospective employer. And so, often enough, when applying for different jobs, we present ourselves as different persons. And why not? If we are going to fabricate a fa to assume a fabricated identity, why not choose the most convenient one? Surrounded as we are by a world that has been scripted in advance by us, both individually and collectively, we are still bound to run into unanticipated situations which contradict our script. What do we do then? This happens often enough even in the so-called impeccable world of science, supposedly impeccable world of science, a world that constantly demands a consistent theoretical framework to interpret its experimental observations. And yet, time and time again, new observations come up which contradict the prevailing framework or paradigm, as it's called, and therefore require a so-called paradigm shift. In physics, for example, that shift occurred about half a century ago is the theory of relativity. This is not the place to go into that, but some of you may know about it. Paradigm shifts are initially resisted, resisted until they turn out to be inevitable. But we still have to embrace them because the problem is that the world of science as we know it cannot do without a consistent theoretical framework. So that after each shift, we end up embracing the new paradigm as if it were now the final definitive explanation of everything until the next shift. But our tenacity in adhering to scientific paradigms is nothing compared with the doggedness with which we adhere, adhere to our visions of ourselves. After all, the self is the character that we have picked to impersonate us day in and day out. And we feel we should be the expert on the subject. Yet, occasionally, a shift becomes necessary. An example of such a shift is illustrated by this first-hand story about a guy in his 60s who used to practice law and then got entangled in illicit activities. And he ended up in jail. Actually, it was a collective jail, and this is from an interview that took place in that jail. And in that jail, he was surrounded by 
people of all colors of race uh, and, uh, and races. And, and then he got the point somehow. And he became dismissive, totally dismissive of his, what he called then in the interview, his old arrogant self. And embraced instead a much more modest portrait of who he was. That's possible, but you know, it required a sense of being in jail and many other things. And in the other example, he illustrates how humor can lighten the weight of our self centeredness. So let me share. Well, there's two examples. Let me share these two stories. The first story involves our daughter Nora, the youngest daughter in the early 50s, and her six-year-old granddaughter, her granddaughter, Zenny. A few months ago, after both of them had spent a weekend here, with us, with Raquel and me. Upon returning to Nora's home in Brooklyn, Nora noticed that Zenny looked sad. A dialogue ensued, and I'll, have, I'll try to reconstruct it the best I can. Nora, Zenny, you look sad. What happened? Zenny. Lala. No, she calls Nora Lala. Lala, I can't find my happiness. I've lost it. Hmm, says Nora. Where? Let's see. Where did you see last? Zenny. I don't know. I can't remember. I'm not sure. Around this point, Zenny smiles and changes her mood. Maybe it was when I was last in my room. Then the two of them start exploring Zenny's room. Nora, could it be that, Zenny, could it be that your happiness is hidden? In this couch, under a cushion, and she lifts a cushion. Zany, oh yes, yes, there it is. <laughs> of course, what Zany meant is that she had rediscovered her happiness in a corner of her heart. The second story concerns the famous novelist, that is famous for some of us, called Jean Le Carré. Actually, that's a, that's a fake name, not his original name. And this story was chronicled in the New York Times just a few weeks ago. 
John Le Carré recounts that years ago he was preparing to write his autobiography and came to realize that having spent much of his life making things up as a novelist, he did not know how to distinguish truth from fiction. I'm happy that he recognized that. Well, many of us don't. <laughs> so, what did he do? He hired two detectives to investigate his past. <laughs> he told them, and I quote from, from that article in the New York Times, as a maker of fictions, I invent versions of myself, never the real thing, if it exists. In conclusion, what if Mr. Le Carré is essentially right when he says that the particular ego, the real thing that we claim to be, actually does not exist? And going back to science, what if the rationally consistent overall explanation that science is trying to construct to explain the world is also beyond reach? No, I'm talking as a former scientist, so I'm big there. Can we do without such certitudes? Can we do without such reassurances. Sure, we can. After all, that's what our practice is all about. Doing without reassurances, certitudes. Let me clarify. It's not that the meditation practice invites us to ignore the practical stuff that comes up in the course of our life. Like, you know, things connected with our job, with our making dinner, whatever. It is that it, it invites us to also and primarily think outside the habitual box. It invites us to allow ourselves to be with life without feeling construct, compelled to construct schemes that justify or even interpret it. To allow ourselves to be fully impregnated by the sensations that come our way without feeling compelled to use them to construct ourselves or to construct the world around us. The Buddha makes this abundantly clear in his teachings. Listen, for instance, to what he says to Bahia in one of his suttas.
Bahia. You should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the herd, only the herd. In reference to the sense, only the sense. In reference to mental phenomena, only the mental phenomena. That's how you should train yourself. When for you, there will be only the scene in reference to the scene, only the herd in reference to the herd, only the sense in reference to the sense, only the mental phenomena in reference to, to the mental phenomena, then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. That's just the end of suffering. Let me try to put that in simpler terms. And I'll be quoting from a meditation teacher whom I never met, called Cynthia Thatcher, who wrote an article in Tricycle about that, about this sutra, a few years ago. Listen to a couple of excerpts from it. The Bahia text is deceptively simple. In one sense, it means don't daydream, pay full attention to what you're seeing. But there's more to these words than you might think, or perhaps less. I did a do double take when my meditation teacher, in a retreat, Explain the deeper meaning of this attention practice. Quote, if we could focus precisely on the present moment, the eye would not be able to identify objects coming into the areas of perception. Ultimately, he said, following the Bahia formula meant to see mere color instead of recognizing the items you are looking at. It was possible to do this because there was a split-second time lag between one, sensing the image, and two, recognition. The same applies to perceiving sound, smell, taste, touch, and mental phenomena, such as feeling. If mindfulness were quick enough, you could catch the very moment of bare seeing. Wait a moment. Have I heard this right, uh, Cynthia? So, if I really stay in the present moment, I'll see a cup in front of me and not recognize it? Absolutely, my teacher said. Just 
just for that split second. One morning, during a meditation retreat, I heard the sound of a bird. A mundane event, right? Except, this is Cynthia talking, right? Except the sound was quick, it was a quick whiplash of sensation that wasn't connected to any named thing. And you know, we, we do that kind of change too. When we sit on the porch on Wednesday night and listen to the sounds, and we soon forget. It doesn't, it's immaterial who's making that sound. In other words, the Buddha is inviting us to experience, in the Bahia Sutta, to experience fully the direct impact of whatever reaches us through our senses, rather than selecting only that that which contributes best to the construction of what the world around us seems to be like. In other words, we're sitting on the porch, listening to sound, hey, we recognize one particular sound of a bird, hey, yeah, and that's the only thing that we listen to and the only thing that impacts us. Furthermore, should our experience include reverberation of discomfort, the Buddha is inviting us not to focus just on the discomfort, but to be fully present with all that comes our way. True, discomfort and pain can act as a warning signal to tell us that something is wrong. Much as a fire alarm can tell us that a fire is wrong. Sure. But to live besieged by the expectation of such threats is both unnecessary and detrimental. The more we focus on the potential dangers that, come, that may come our way, the more we absent ourselves from the actual reality of life. Listen to Pema Chodron, a teacher that some of you may know of, says about this in one of her books. In order to change our habits, we have to develop an appetite for what I like to call positively groundlessness or positive insecurity. Normal, of course, we want to get away from that uncomfortable, from that uncomfortable feeling. Huh? It just seems reasonable to want to do so. And it would be reasonable except for the fact that, as you may have noticed, this doesn't really work. We've been trying the same ways of getting comfortable for as long as we can remember, and yet our aggression our anxiety, our resentfulness doesn't seem to get any less. 
So I'm saying that we need to develop an appetite for groundlessness. We need to get curious about it and be willing to pause and hang out for a while in that space of insecurity. So, sure, to, to agree with her, in practical terms, it is a good idea to reduce our risk. That's when we use our seat belts or fire alarms. But it's also most important to keep our mind at peace. Not letting it to be taken over, it, or not, taken over by a sense of having to be always of the defensive. Let us live instead an open life. Last Tuesday I got an email from a member of our group addressing the issue of automatically getting into psychological armors to defend ourselves. He said that once we see ourselves doing that, the armors, and I quote his email, miraculously disappear by themselves. The seeing is the solvent that disperses them almost, almost without my effort. My job is just only to sit and watch as they drop away. This is very much how it works for me. Of course, you have to get yourself to, into a certain mindset before this can be done. And in that open life, we must also accept the inevitability of our eventual aging and death. Having turned 90 years old a couple of months ago, I'm quite familiar with the impact of the gradual deterioration of body and mind with age. And I'm also well aware that this is bound to lead to the end of, quote, my, unquote, life. The catch is in calling it mine. Thinking about life within the enclosure of me and mine, we end up dissecting, segregating the life inhabiting our body from the whole flow of life. But is that a fair thing to do? Surely not. The lives of each one of us are an integral part of the whole flow of life. Often enough we vibrate in resonance with each other as it happens Within this group, 
Wednesday nights here to time and time again. We also do vibrate it, vibrate in resonance to our pets, pet animals, for instance. And surely, irresistibly, we resonate with whatever babies we have the opportunity to hold in our arms. Our pr practice contributes to make us aware of all of this. Aware that in the depth of our being, of our body and our mind, we are just a patch in the vast tissue of life that continues to be embroidered with our help as long as we are around. We give and we receive. Thanks. Let's sit for a couple of minutes in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.